Welcome to episode 22 of Jesus and the Meteorologist. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and I am your host. Our subject is discernment, and our aim is to teach, to elevate your minds, and to exalt your courage, to accelerate and animate your industry and activity, and to excite in you an ambition to excel in every capacity, faculty, and virtue. Our mission is to inspire young men and women and their parents to understand the present in order to prepare for the future, a task that necessarily demands a proper interpretation of the past. Our aim is to highlight the antithesis between the way of the Lord and the ways of the world, between the truth of Scripture and the opinions of men, so that we might reflect the light of life in a culture of death. Well, ladies and gentlemen, spring is in the air. We are fast approaching my favorite time of the year, which is the second calendar quarter from March 21st to June 21st, depending on the year. Some, sometimes it's, say, March 20th to June 20th. Days are getting longer and warmer. The grass gets rich and green. The leaves are verdant. Of course, by the 4th of July, everything gets overheated around here. The grass begins to burn in the shallow clay and rock of the Tennessee soil. And before you know it, everything's dead, <laughs> coinciding with the start of a new school year. Kind of fitting, right? Yuck. But first, we shall enjoy new life, the resurrection manifested in the creation. Even the seasons, with their regularity of winter followed by spring, followed by summer, followed by fall, testify to the knowledge of God. Can you imagine the upheaval of a world whose seasons were out of order? What if, for example, spring came and we went straight from winter to summer? And then crashed and burned with the deadness of fall. I'm going to introduce our icebergs early today because we have a special guest iceberg who is calling in, a, an old friend uh, calling in from a nondescript location in a southern state of the United States of America. We welcome to the podcast, Russell. How you doing, Russell? Good. How are you? Doing great. Are you uh, excited to be on here with... Uh, our straw man with our penguin's puck with our little bell and our other icebergs? I am. Russell, what do you like to do with your free time? Hint, hint, has to do with paddling. I like to row on the river And with uh, my team. Are you one of the rowers or are you the coxswain? I'm a rower. You're a rower. Because you're, you're bigger and stronger. The coxswain has to be a, a light guy, right? Somebody who's really, like, really skinny and doesn't add much weight to the boat. Yes, sir. <clears throat> I say that because when I was a freshman in college, one of my good friends down the hall was a coxswain, and the sole, he was a musician. And the sole reason they asked him to be a coxswain because he had never been on a boat before was because he was thin. He was like a, I mean, literally as thin as spaghetti, dry spaghetti, you know, when there's like <laughs> stiff and brittle. <laughs> all right. So I want to talk about the seasons for a minute and just ask you a really basic question. This is all play open to Russell or to Roger and Penelope, who are here with us in the studio. What if we had nothing other than winter everywhere all the time? Sounds like the Narnia. Groundhog Day. Oh, <laughs> well, that, yeah, kind of depressing. Yeah, well, sounds I, like I thought Narnia. it sounded like Narnia, yeah. Okay, so what would, what would change from the seasons that we have now? We have four seasons, right? Spring, summer, fall, and winter. If everything was winter all the time, what are, what are some of the practical ramifications of one season? 
In other words, what are the consequences? What happens Uh-oh. if you only have one season? And especially if that season is winter. You don't get the benefit. No rowing. <laughs> no, no, no rowing. Okay, so Russell's thinking of himself. <laughs> you don't no rowing unless you unless you are in a well, that's right. If if it's winter over the entire globe. Yeah. Even on that. even on the equator. No swimming. Okay, no swimming. No flowers. No flowers. Leaves. No leaves. Okay. What else? Think of bigger, more important. No bees. That's a good thing. <laughs> no bees. Everything yeah. is dead. Okay. Like what? Name some things that would not be living. Uh, trees. Well, trees don't die in the winter, do they? Oh, yeah. Okay, I guess. Although it does raise the question, if it was perpetually winter and the trees were not able to remanufacture their leaves every year and they don't grow in the winter, would they be able to remain alive perhaps more than a few winters? Probably not. Uh, how, how about food production? <clears throat> not uh, much fruit. Well, much? I was going to say, <laughs> not yeah, any not fruit. any fruit. Not, it'd be hard, hard to grow a lot of food which grows in warm, warm weather. Probably I'll be eating potatoes or something. <laughs> okay, because you can still grow potatoes, although even that is, would be in question. We, we take for granted, don't we, that we get our food in the winter, but our food from the earth comes from warmer climates mm-hmm. for the most part. What, else, what about energy? Where do we get our energy? The sun. Okay. But the sun is, is, the, is the primary source of everything on the earth, right? And it breaks down into energy. But where do we currently get our energy for heating your home, driving your car, uh, running your computers? Either burning coal or nuclear power okay. plants. And ener- Pardon, Russell? I was going to say by food. You mean how the person gets his energy by eating food? Yes. And there would there would be a scarcity of food, wouldn't there? There would. I so, would assume so. So do you think the world would panic if suddenly we had nothing but winter? Oh, for yes. sure. <laughs> Definitely. How long do you think it would take them to figure out that winter wasn't ending? Mm-hmm. Think about it in the context of if we have a long winter now and it gets to April and it's still unseasonably cold. Probably, imagine that probably ex- would take till July or something. I don't know why my voice cracked there, but probably take till July or something for people to realize something isn't right. And it would it would affect it would negatively impact the economy, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think anyone would turn to God? Wow, that was a lot longer pause than I expected. Russell, do you think anyone yes. would turn to God? Well, believers if, would. Wait, everything. I was, was asking Russell. Right Sorry. Go ahead, if everything was always winter? Yes. Well, if they... I don't know if everyone would necessarily turn to God because it was... Well, he's, we've, a lot has happened because of a virus, a fake virus. But, um, well, I didn't ask, would everyone turn to God? I think we would agree. But would some people? I, yeah, I um, said, would anyone turn to God and how long would it take? Well, I, I would think there would be a few hopeless people out there that would. Hopeless? How long it would... <laughs> wait, wait. Uh, I the don't hopeless... know. Winter's, winter's pretty sad. No, I know, but if I, I would not define a person turning to God as hopeless. You're not saying that turning to God is... Well, You're no, saying no. someone who runs out of hope in man would turn to God. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I should have clarified. But um, how long it would take for them to turn to God? 
Um, I, I think it's a. I don't know. It's a, it's an inter- interesting question. In the same way that if it went dark, and it was dark for many days, you didn't wake up in the morning to the sunrise. And I'm not talking about just the difference between a rainy day and a sunny day, but if there was literally no light, right? You woke up in the morning, mm-hmm. and it's dark, and it remains dark, and it's day after day. Well, this regularity of the seasons, I, I wanted to use it to kind of springboard into our later discussion. It's one of those universal constructs of God's created order, is it not? Is yes. it not? Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. And it's one upon which everyone relies, as we used to say in law school, to their detriment, detrimental reliance, which is to say we depend upon it, we place all of our trust in it, and we make innumerable assumptions upon it, so much so that were the rug of regular seasonal sequence to be pulled out from under us, the consequences, or Penelope, the ramifications, would be far-reaching and inescapable. Well, this is another example of what we mean when we say that everyone knows God, because everyone proceeds on the expectation that the order that God created has always been and will always be. And so they set their course accordingly. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is not so much how they live, but in how they account for how they live. The believer gives glory to God and thanks him for creating all things and holding all things together according to the counsel of his will. The unbeliever, on the other hand, pretends this is just the way it is, neither giving glory to God nor thanking him, leading to what the scriptures explain becomes, for the rebellious, futile thinking and darkening of his foolish heart. So when we get back, I'm going to engage with our icebergs, including our visiting iceberg, Russell, in a return to an apologetic for liberty. You are listening to Jesus and the Meteorologists. There are citizens in Tennessee working to reclaim the practice of self-governance in our state and ensure that a constitutional Republican form of government is preserved to future generations. We are Tennessee Stands. Do you want to get off the sidelines and learn how to stand for liberty in your community? Join us at TennesseeStands.org and on social media at Tennessee Stands. Welcome back to Jesus and the Meteorologists, a weekly squidget devoted to the topic of discernment. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and I'm your host. So back in episode 19, we spoke to how the modern church has lost its love of liberty. The icebergs examined how the church today has replaced its calling to love its neighbor with a dangerous authoritarian impulse to tell its neighbors what to do and how to think, all under the auspices of, quote, keeping its neighbors safe. In those prior episodes, we established the biblical basis for defending the cause of liberty, So today and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to prove why liberty cannot be coherently defended on any other basis. To do this, we are going to enter not the old offices of hypothesis, which is apparently still on a very long vacation. Well, now that you just used it, it's back. (laughs) No, it's, well, no, we just made reference to it. Kind of like holding up a picture of a guy who's not here. But rather, we're going to return to our new favorite meeting place, which is the Palaces of Analysis. 
That even has a, a happier ring to it, doesn't it? Does it does have a happier ring. It doesn't sound so... Uh, Monotone? The yeah, icebergs so, who recorded so looming, it. So, so like... A, Offices of hypothesis. <laughs> so, Russell, now you know what the palaces of analysis is. Yes. Okay, icebergs. We previously discussed how the most common objection... This goes a couple... Epi- go back a couple episodes... The most common objection to our claim that liberty cannot be coherently explained or sustained apart from Christ are those who believe that liberty is, quote, inherent in humanity. I'm going to start the clock in a minute, but can anyone tell me what it means to say that liberty is inherent? It means that it's not given to us by someone. It's it just belongs to us, like in our nature. Okay, in your nature, that's really good, Roger. To say that liberty is inherent is also, people would say, well, that's just how it is, right? Yeah. Or it is self-evident, okay? So what is the problem with taking that position? If you say liberty is simply self-evident, it's just how it is, it's in our nature, what's the problem with that position? If it was just in our nature, wouldn't nobody else be able to take it away from us? Um, uh, why not? Um, like, life, for example, physical life is in your nature, and if someone were to kill you, have they not taken that from you? That's true. Or driven it from you? Yeah. Would someone who believes that, like, be able to tell the difference between liberty and what's not liberty? Because they, if they believed that they had it, then even if they didn't, because they just believe they, like have it in like inherited not inherited but inherent like it's oh. part it's yeah it's part of it's again we're what we're doing is focusing <laughs> the words today <laughs> <laughs> it's all right it's part of the process big words <laughs> to say it is inherent i n h e r e n t not inherited <laughs> inherited <Louis>. um <laughs> And my dad just passed away, but I got some liberty. <laughs> <laughs> I inherited liberty. Well, we know actually that we do inherit liberty, right? The biblical answer, the biblical explanation for liberties that comes from God. So in that sense, it is do, inherited. Yeah. But this is but what we're talking about today is the belief that liberty is simply inherent, which is to say that's how it is. Russell, do you see any problem with defending liberty if... It is merely inherent. What's wrong with that position? Or what's the weakness in that argument? Well, I was going to say, um, if it was just inherent, then people wouldn't have the same, people wouldn't want to defend it like the founding fathers did because they would, they would have just deserved it. Okay. So should have just been theirs. All right. So and that's what a lot of people think today. So maybe taking it for granted is what you're suggesting? Yes, sir. Let me actually address a fundamental kind of a pre a pre answer before we get to that then. Because I don't think when you say that liberty is inherent, I don't think that's an answer. I think it's a conclusion that begs other questions. Now what other questions if if, if you say that liberty is inherent, you're drawing a conclusion, but it raises what other questions now? Two in particular. Any idea? Well, Let me give you number one. How do you know that liberty is inherent? Right? You're just stating that liberty is inherent. But where's your authority? Where's your support for that argument? Where's your evidence? Right? 
And then the second question is, even if you manage to prove that liberty is inherent, why is this so? Are those not two important questions? Yeah. If someone says, I'm the greatest hockey player. Well, if we're talking about Sidney Crosby. But even Sidney Crosby would have to give evidence, wouldn't he? Oh, yeah. I think rational discussion demands evidence. And, of course, you would give evidence of the number of goals he scored, the number of assists, overall points, how long he's played, number of Stanley Cups, ding, 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 Crosby's won three, Penguins won five. Not boasting here, not reminding anybody of who the best hockey team is. <clears throat> well, sorry. The That's why I brought up the puck today, by the way. Just <laughs> reminding our local fans, Penguins, Predators, on that puck. Penguins beat the Predators. Yes, they did. So to claim something like that would be, a, would be conclusory in nature unless we were ready and able to prove with evidence why Sidney Crosby is the greatest or one of the greatest hockey players. And I don't, I don't think anybody would argue that he's the greatest, but he certainly is in the top 10 yeah, of all time. Yeah. Um, no, Sid himself wouldn't say he's the greatest. No, but... he would never make that which is one of the reasons why he's one of the top 10 greatest, because mm -hmm. he's also humble. So when you say that liberty is inherent, if you're not prepared to give an answer as to why it's inherent um, and how you know that it's inherent, then it's not really an answer. It's just a conclusion. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. We yeah. have an answer, of course, where liberty comes from, right? We believe that God created all things. He holds everything together according to the counsel of his will. And that reality, such as the uniformity of nature, which we talked about with the seasons, right? The reliability of the scientific method, laws of logic, natural laws, use of language, the reliability of our memories, and a host of other immaterial universal concepts are the necessary and beautiful constructs of God's created order. And they are revealed to all and upon which all of God's creation, both believer and unbeliever, rely in order to make sense of their experiences and observations. So this regularity of God's created order is necessary for planting and successful harvesting of crops, which, by the way, wouldn't be possible if the entire year were what? Winter. <laughs> Winter. Winter. Making advances in science and medicine, propagating the family, etc., etc. If the triune God of Scripture is not the ultimate reality at back of everything, which is to say, if the nature of God, the character of man, the world in which we live, and even truth itself, if these things are not as God defines them in Christ, on what basis could anyone proceed on the expectation of these other universal concepts that everyone imposes upon particular things in order that they might be known and distinguished from other things? So here's a question. How can we live an intentional, rational, scientific, moral life unless we take for granted how God has ordered creation. In other words, and this is a question of the icebergs, if there's no created order, why, for example, would an unbeliever attend a funeral? This one deserves a clock. Well, they would probably say to honor that person's life or something, to pay their respects. But what does that imply? Remember, the unbelievers believe these things just exist, right? That we're... We descended from primordial blobs, we're just matter in motion, comprised of various atoms that just exist, 
right? Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, well, let's break it down even further. What happens at a funeral? Why do people go to a funeral? To mourn. Okay. To mourn. That's one. What does mourning imply? If you're sad and you're crying. It implies that there's loss. Okay. An expectation that things should have been a different way. Yeah. Right? But if this was just how things were, why would we feel sad when someone dies? Right. At a funeral, people express sorrow, loss, right? Sometimes if it's somebody young or somebody who wasn't sick, it raises questions of why, how, to what end, right? Well, all of these things take for granted what? That people shouldn't die. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a shouldn't, right? There's an expectation of what things should be. But that only makes sense if we're created in God's image and that the order of everything is held together. Emotions like sadness, anger, discouragement, they only make sense and arise in the context of unmet expectations, mm-hmm. right? But if man evolved, as we said, from primordial blobs and are no more than matter in motion that just exist, how can we account for having any expectations of what things should be, right? Yeah. So that's another another example um, of God's created order. Okay, here's another question. If there is no order created by God, what's the point of going to the lab to look for a cure for cancer? What happens in a lab? Why do people go to a lab for anything? I just picked out cancer, but what are some assumptions behind going into a lab? Trying to find an answer. Yeah, trying to solve a problem or something. Okay, and when you're trying to find solve a problem, what are more assumptions that have to be that that, there is a problem? Yeah, that there's something that needs to be fixed. Okay, something needs to be fixed, and. Are you not relying upon certain things or expecting certain things to happen? Is there not some regularity that you're expecting? Yeah. When you test something in a lab, right? You're expecting the same thing to occur when you do the same thing. Right. That matter responds the same way to certain conditions, right? And you depend upon that as you build your lab report and as you build your – you build upon your thesis and you – you get to your conclusion, if you went into a lab one day and water boiled at 212 degrees Fahrenheit and you go into the, the lab the next day and it takes it 500 degrees, you're not going to be able to do any kind of consistent experiments, right? Yeah. What if one day we could drink H2O and it's it replenishes our body, but the next day we drink it and people die? Some bad water. <laughs> it's like the water in Amazing Grace. So these things we, we take for granted and we, de- we depend upon them, but you can't do any scientific experiment unless you depend upon the regularity of matter, can you? No, you can't. Mm-hmm. So the scientific method with its dependence on the regularity of these things presupposes the Christian worldview. It assumes, for example, that the future will resemble the past and that the past is a guide to the present. But in a chance random Every evolving world, you can't justify any correlation between what happens today and what happens yesterday. Does this mean that people don't do that? People will say, well, yesterday, water boiled at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start today assuming that and build from there. Yeah. Does it mean that an unbeliever doesn't 
rely on these things or doesn't know these things? No, the unbeliever still relies on them. They just assume them. Yeah. They don't they, really have a foundation. They for assume them, but they don't give any evidence as to where they come from, right? They use them all the time. Again, this is what we mean by knowledge of God is inescapable. The world doesn't like this answer, of course, but it is a rationally coherent answer. The unbelieving world, on the other hand, professes that they're living in this random chance natural world we're seeing as believing or where the only things we can know are particular things we experience and where anything is possible except an all-knowing, all-encompassing God, apparently. Well, in the unbeliever's worldview, man is assumed, by the way, without evidence, to be the measure of all things. Yet the unbeliever demonstrates the truth of the Christian worldview by virtue of the fact that he uses and depends upon the regularity of the created order and upon these immaterial universal concepts in order to make sense of his experiences and observations, even while assuring himself that these concepts didn't come from God. They just exist, right? Mm -hmm. So, in reality, the, the unbelievers operating from a Christian worldview while pretending that what he knows has not been revealed to him by the one who created him. Can anybody tell me the scripture that talks about this very idea of self-deception and self-delusion? There's a, there's a scripture that we've gone over before, not only on this program, but in some of my classes. Maybe Russell will know. I'm thinking and looking. He's thinking and looking from is somewhere it, in his nondescript location in a southern state. Roger? In an underground bunker in a southern state. Sounds like Mark Levin. It does. Romans 1, ring a bell? Yeah. That's Romans 1, 18 say. through 21, what's Paul say? People what? Suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is? Plain to them. Because God has? Made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, What? God's invisible qualities. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Okay, and here's the key point. For although they knew God, they neither what? Glorified, Glorified him, him as God, God or, or gave, gave thanks them, to him. Nor gave thanks to him. But their minds became? Futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Foolish hearts were darkened. Right. Okay, Russell, any questions on that? I found it that you guys beat me. So, Russell, you've been very um, passive. I think when we get back, we're going to expect a good question from you. When we return, we're going to ask and answer questions about today's topic. This is Jesus and the Meteorologists. So I wrote a little book all the way back in 2009 to address what was happening in America and what was likely to happen if we did not take corrective action. Unfortunately, too many of my predictions are coming true. The only surprise is the speed at which we have reached the precipice. The title of that little book is The Experts, and you can buy it on our webpage. Just go to JesusAndTheMeteorologist.com, click the image of the little brown book, and we'll send it to you for only $9.99. And then be sure to let me know what you think. Welcome back to Jesus and the Meteorologists. My name is Kevin Kukaji, and I am your host. If you would like to call into the program like Russell has done today... You can either send your questions to questions at icebergsnotsnowflakes.com 
or you could, um, I guess that's the best place to do it. Mm-hmm. We'll find, we may find you anyway, just like we found Russell. We actually found Russell because we knew that he was listening to an episode and I said, ah, we need to have Russell on the program. <laughs> so Russell, you are, tell us a, very briefly about your water activities and then I have a question for you. <laughs> Why do you say? Why did you say it that way? <laughs> because I didn't Water want it. It's a never. I just wanted him to address it. What Tell do you do you about rowing? Yeah, I wasn't talking about swimming. Talking about okay. rowing. And don't you wear a funny little outfit when you row? Yes. What's it called? A uni. A uni. A uni suit. A unitard. A unitard. I'm sorry. For, for short, just a uni. I'm sorry you have to wear those, but everybody else has to wear them too, so you're not alone. Oh, no, it's the best uniform So <laughs> by far. We're talking about the regularity of God's created order and how this is depended upon by everyone, believer and unbeliever. If you take a, a tube of toothpaste, which everyone knows about, right? What happens when you squeeze the tube of toothpaste? Toothpaste comes out. Okay. So what's going to happen tomorrow when you squeeze the tube of toothpaste? Hopefully it comes out. Unless it's constipated. <laughs> How do you know? How do you know the toothpaste is going to come out tomorrow? Russell? Because it did today. Oh, because it did today. Time. Because it did today? Tell me why. Oh, why does today um, connect with, or why is there any correlation between today and tomorrow? Are you assuming something without giving evidence for it? Um, that the days are not the same, but that it all, it's ordered. Yeah, we are assuming, aren't we? When I squeeze the toothpaste tube tomorrow, I'm relying upon what happened today and yesterday and the day before, right? A child knows this, and there's nothing wrong with that. This is how order is established. This is the order according to which we live. But if you don't believe that God has created this order and holds it all together— How do you account for knowing that tomorrow is going to be like today? The first thing, by the way, that an unbeliever is going to say is something like this. Well, the day before yesterday, I squeezed it, and I thought that yesterday I was going to squeeze it, and the same thing was going to happen, and so it happened that way. But what's the the problem with that answer? What does it leave out? The very first time you squeezed it? No, the next time. It still does not account for why the next time should happen like the past, right? You still, outside of an order, all you can do is assume that tomorrow is like today, right? Yeah. And it's a good assumption because it's the order in which we live. But if you don't believe there is an order and that things are just random, then you can't, on your own philosophy, tell me that tomorrow that toothpaste is going to come out. Why doesn't the toothpaste, for example, go up when you squirt it, right, instead of dropping to the ground if it misses your toothbrush, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what we must that's what we're trying to emphasize. It's not that they don't operate according to this order. Everyone does, which is why we say that knowledge of God is inescapable. The issue is, according to an unbelieving worldview, they can't live consistently with what they say they believe. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. Russ, Russell, any final uh, thoughts or comments, rowing or otherwise, before we end? None. Man of few I'm words. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe we'll have do you have Today, a, at least. do you have any um siblings? I do. Okay. Brother or sister or both? A sister. Okay. Maybe we'll get your sister on next episode. Maybe she'll be a little more vivacious. By the way, Penelope, vivacious means lively. I was wondering. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's all the time we have today, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks again to our icebergs, our producer, Rachel, and to all of our listeners and supporters. In the never-ending battle for hearts and minds, we aim to find and develop young men and women who, like the men of Issachar, understand the times and who know what to do. And how can we know what we're to do unless we believe what is true? My name is Kevin Kukaji, and you've been listening to Jesus and the Meteorologists. Meteorologists.